whenever I get the chance to travel, not every single time, but a lot of times, particularly if I go someplace new, I like to play a little game with myself. And this game is I might close my eyes for a second and imagine what if somehow, you know, just like in Star Trek, forgive me for a mild geek out here, I was in a, a transporter and I just was transported to this spot or I was sleepwalking and I could travel all over the world because I just deep sleep, I could go anywhere, and I wake up and I'm in this spot, would I be able to tell where in the world I was just by looking around? Has anyone else ever done that or am I kind of weird? I'm weird. Okay, I'm okay with that. I'm all right. So I look around and I'm like, what would tell me I am where I am? So some places it's easy. So like if I close my eyes and I I'm transported into the middle of New York City in Manhattan, Times Square. I can open my eyes. I see the big video screens, the, the yellow taxi cabs, right? I, I'm like, okay, I, I think I can figure this out. You know, if, if, if I was transported in the middle of Wrigley Field, you know, I'm a Cubs fan, I would know immediately, oh, there's the ivy on the walls. There's the brick. Um, there's the famous scoreboard. I would know exactly where I am. But it's not always just visual cues. There's also things that you can hear and things that you can smell, I know without a doubt, if I was transported back to where I went to school years ago, and I smelled this particular smell of my favorite chicken wings in the world, (laughs) I would know that I was somewhere, and this is true, not even right outside the door, but somewhere within a two to three block radius (laughs) of Buffalo Joe's in Evanston, Illinois. Uh, because depending on the way the wind is blowing, you can smell it all over downtown. It's, 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 my mouth is watering. I have to take a drink. So it's not just visual cues, but sometimes what you hear, what you smell, they're like signposts of where you are in the world. If someone was to drop you out of nowhere into Philadelphia, how would you recognize it? Row homes, trolleys, food trucks. The skyline, maybe. The accent. Someone offers you some water ice. Where are you? You're in Philadelphia. Or you see a banner hanging that says Super Bowl champions. You know where you are. You're in, how, long can I, how long can we just lean into that? We get at least a year, right? We get at least a year, okay? So right now, uh, we're in the middle of a six-week series called 40 Days for Philly. It's our Lenten series, or it's the series that leads up to Easter. And what we're looking at during the series is city life, what it means to live in a city, why that's an amazing thing, what the particular opportunities and challenges are, how we can do it well, how we can make a difference, how we can lean into the mission of our church, which is seeking to make our great city even better. And so this week, we're going to look at how we can know where to start Because if I told you, go make the city better, wouldn't you maybe think just for a second, okay, that sounds good. Where in the world would I start with that? There are so many places, right, where you could think, well, that would be a good place. How can we tell where God is actually at work so that we can partner with what he's up to? And so today we're going to look at a biblical description of a city that I think can teach us a lot about knowing where to start. Does that sound interesting? We're going to try and get some signposts from this passage that we can look for in our everyday lives to maybe get clued in on what God's up to. So 
The passage we're going to read today, scholars believe that the time period that it was written is immediately following the one we looked at last week. So last week, we looked at the Israelites that were carried off into captivity into Babylon, right? And they're there for 70 years. This is a prophecy that's recorded in Scripture that happens right after they get back to Jerusalem. So 70 years have passed. They're back. They're home. And their return is compared to, in sort of their memory or historical memory, to as a second exodus. So the first exodus was when the people of Israel were taken out of Egypt and out of slavery. Now they're coming back out of exile, back to Jerusalem again, and it's like their second exodus. So what they're expecting is the kingdom of David to be restored, their hero king, and the temple to be rebuilt, and God's reign to be established once and for all on earth. But it doesn't happen that way. And actually times are really tough. And so last week we saw God encourage his people to invest in a foreign city. This week he speaks to encourage them about a new city and a new kingdom that's coming that they're hoping for. And as he describes it, he gives them a picture of what it will look like, signposts. When you see this happening, you'll know it's happening, you'll know it's coming. And that's what we're reading today. This is Isaiah chapter 65. Um, And this is the prophecy. See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For what I will create, for I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. And the sound of weeping and and of crying, it will be heard in it no more. Never again will there be in it infants who live but a few days, or older people who do not live out their years. Those who die at a hundred will be thought mere youths. Those who fail to reach a hundred be considered accursed. They will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. No longer will they build houses and others live in them, or plant and others eat. For as the days of a tree, so will be the days of my people. My chosen ones will long enjoy the work of their hands. They will not labor in vain, nor will they bear children doomed to misfortune. For they will be a people blessed by the Lord, and they and all their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb will feed together. The lion will eat straw like the ox, but dust will be the serpent's food. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, says the Lord. Okay, so God casts this vision of what this new heaven, this new earth is going to look like. And if you're a beleaguered, tired, worn out Israelite, and you hear this prophecy of a new city that God is creating, how will you recognize it when it's starting to happen? What are the signposts that will help you place yourself in that city? Well, I think in this passage, we see at least two major signposts of renewal in the city, two groupings, if you will. And the first is physical slash systemic renewal, just super practical. So for example, you notice that the city has good health care. Did you pick up on that? I'm serious. Never again will there be in it infants who live but a few days or older people who do not live out their years. Those who die at 100 will be considered mere youths. Those who fail to reach 100 will be considered accursed. They also have fair and equitable housing. 
Very practical. Did you see that? In verse 21, they will build houses and dwell in them. No longer will they build houses and others live in them. So there's equality. There's fairness there. Also, there's economic development and prosperity. Commerce, things like that are doing well. It says they will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. My chosen ones will long enjoy the work of their hands. They will not labor in vain. So here we have a prophecy that's talking about super practical things. It's not just some spiritual reality here. We have jobs. We have health care, right? God cares about those things. So God points out that the kingdom that's coming, the city that's coming, will be a place of physical renewal and systemic justice. Good news, right? But it's not just that. It's also spiritual renewal. So what we see in this passage is forgiveness offered to everyone. So it says they'll plant vineyards and eat their fruit. No longer will they build houses and others live in them or plant and others eat. Now, you need a little background to understand what God's talking about there. And if you look back to one of the promises that God had made to the Israelites as they're coming out of Egypt, we talked about that first exodus. And one of the promises is that if they decide to turn their back on him, that, quote, a people that you do not know will eat what your land and labor produce, and you will have nothing but cruel oppression all your days. So God is offering forgiveness for a past of rejecting him. This is a, to say you're going to plant and eat it, you're going to build a house and live in it, that's saying, look, it all is forgiven. Your house is going to stay your houses, the food, you, you know, it's going to be yours. Also, there's this promise of uh, intimacy. In verse 24, it says, before they call, I will answer. So he's like knowing what's in the head and the heart of people. They don't even have to pray it before he's answering. It says, while they're still speaking, I will hear. You haven't finished the sentence. He knows where it's going, and he's responding. There's this connection. So that sounds good, yeah? Both those sound pretty good to be. And it may sound, at first, like things like this might be really easy to see, right? Oh, if all these great things are happening, we would notice, right? But they're actually not always that easy to see. It seems that we can fall into traps in our lives that sort of blind us from seeing what God is doing around us all the time, today. And we miss things. We miss out. A common trap, this is going to sound like a big idea, but it's actually really simple, common trap that can blind us to see what God's doing around us is something that theologians call dualism. Now, I know that sounds really high-minded. It's a simple idea. It's the, it's the doctrine or the idea that uh, there are two things happening and only two things, maybe even two eternal principles, one good, one e- evil, and they, they battle against each other, right? So, for example, uh, a way to think dualistically uh, or, or in an either-or sort of way, is the, how do you perceive reality? You know, is it totally physical? Is that the most important thing, or is it totally spiritual? So physical versus spiritual. You know, if the only reality is spiritual, then the physical, like all this, just a distraction. And you can really ignore the real physical and systemic needs of people and at the same time ignore their suffering or oppression or the fact that they're hungry, right? But if the only reality is the physical, then we can think that education or the government can solve every problem and miss the deep needs for connection and healing that people have. 
It's not one or the other. And when we slide into that kind of thinking, we can miss what God's doing in the physical realm or miss the need that people have in the spiritual realm. Another way is expectancy. What do we expect to happen? We expect something to happen now, immediately, or someday. This is the type of thinking we can slip into. If we become too focused on the here and now, if we're too idealistic, when trouble remains in our city, we become frustrated. We get cynical. And we become blind to what God is actually doing. If it's not perfect now, it's all a mess. No, maybe God's actually at work. But at the same time, if you have the attitude that it's always going to be terrible here, we can become fatalistic or give up and withdraw. Sort of the idea, why would I want to rearrange the furniture on the deck of the Titanic? It's going down. Let me just focus on the by and by. Let me just focus on people's souls and saving their souls and forget about the problems that people face every day. These are some of the traps we can fall into. Or activity. How do we get things done? How do we see the kingdom of God happening? Well, one attitude is make it happen, right? Another is wait for God, right? Make it happen is the key to burnout because the problems of this city, as great as this city is, are too big and too varied for one person or even one community. At the same time, if all you do is wait for God, you may end up doing nothing. So Jesus came and he talked about the kingdom of God in a new way. In all of these either-ors, these dualistic, one thing or the other types of thinking, he sort of did a little bit differently. He said, the kingdom's here now. And he displayed signposts so that people could see that he was bringing the kingdom of God. So there, there, in terms of healthcare, he healed people, right? In terms of justice, he defended women. He turned over the money changers that were abusing people in the temple. Economic development. You forget that he fed 5,000 people, men, plus their families at one time. He said, render to Caesar. What is Caesar's? One time, he had someone cast a line, we forget the story, into the river, caught a fish, and there was a coin in the fish. And he used that to pay the temple tax. All right, so there's a lot of economic development happening. In terms of forgiveness, that ha- that's a real story. You got to read this book. It's pretty good. Fun stuff happens all the time, especially around Jesus. He certainly forgave people. People know that about Jesus. I don't even have to tell any stories, right? Jesus forgave people, so there's that there. And he revealed, in terms of connection, he revealed God as, as a good father. I know father can be loaded, but, but as a good father. And made access to experiencing that, no matter what your background, available. And these things aren't a coincidence. He did all of these things deliberately and specifically because he cared and loved for people, but also because they tied back to these prophecies about when the kingdom of God comes, how will you tell? How can you see it? There'll be signposts. And we just read one of those passages, and we see Jesus doing these things. He's hitting all of them. But with Jesus, the kingdom has come, but it's still coming, right? Confusing. So he spoke of the kingdom as if it was also off in the distance, but could be here any moment. If you ever heard me talk about that, you know that the, the, the words that he used in Greek to describe that were the same words used to describe a woman who was not just expecting, but was going into labor. That's how close the kingdom was, like a baby who's about to be here. Breaking in, but in the middle of an imperfect world. This was a new way to look at things because people had been expecting a dualistic 
experience of the kingdom of God, or an either-or, or like black and white experience, all or nothing. It was going to, one thing was going to happen and everything was going to change. Jesus, however, was like we talked about last week, both and. Let me put this into terms I hope makes some sense. So, Jesus replaced physical versus spiritual with this idea of shalom, which we looked at last week. Shalom means peace, but it means more than just no war. It means everything being knitted back together the way it's supposed to be. The spiritual, the physical, everything. Just like we see in this prophecy. Human flourishing holistically across the board in any way you could think of. So Jesus replaced physical versus spiritual with shalom. He replaced now versus someday with any minute. Any minute. That leaves room for you to hope and experience and also makes sense when you continue to wait. And he replaced make it happen versus wait for God with follow me. There's always something to do. You can always follow him somewhere. You're never sitting on your hands. But when you follow someone, you look for what they're doing and their instructions and their encouragement. So you, you, it's not like you could just do anything because that's overwhelming. You're following a person. You're following. So you're active, but you're doing specific things. Isn't that different? Jesus is pretty cool. This is different approaches to life and spirituality. So we have shalom at any minute if we follow him. And we're invited to be a part of not just seeing the signposts, but helping them come into reality. Uh, There's a theologian. He's really famous in a lot of circles. But what's really more important is what he says. His name's N.T. Wright, and he said this. There is no room here for dualism. Rather, there is a strong incentive to work in the present to anticipate the new world in every possible way. Those who are grasped by the vision of God's new world unveiled in Jesus are already sharing in that newness and are called to produce in the present time more and more signposts to point to this eventual and glorious future. So, how can we make sure that we see these signposts and these opportunities when they come our way. Let me give you four things to think about. This doesn't cover the whole subject, but it'll give you enough to get started. The first has been a big theme in this series. Celebrate the city. Celebrate Philadelphia. It said, For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight, and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. If you can't love and celebrate Philadelphia, it will be very difficult for you to see what God's doing here. It's the equivalent of focusing just on the someday somewhere else and missing what is right now. Nobody in this room is a martyr for living in this city at all. You know, I tend to agree with National Geographic. I think they need to write an update to this because actually... They said this in 2005, and I think a lot of this is coming to pass already. But they labeled Philadelphia in 2005 the next great city. So maybe we're not next anymore. Maybe the Super Bowl proves that. I don't know. 
But here's what they said about Philadelphia then, and I think a lot's happened since. They said Philly is clearly on a roll. There is more to Philly than Independence Hall and the Liberty Bell. Like public art, Philly has some 2,400 murals. Razzle-dazzle? At the National Constitution Center Museum, the nation's most hallowed document is celebrated with Vegas-style glitz. Street parties? Adunde, an annual Nigerian-inspired summer festival, attracts over 300,000 revelers. Enough visitors heed Philly's call that Southwest and Frontier Airlines started service here last year. See how old this is? See, it's gotten better since then. And the cruise uh, terminal on the Delaware now offers 32 annual sailings. And when I say that, here, here, right? Are you with me? But that's so old. And they're just getting started. It doesn't even talk about uh, First Friday, the architecture, the diversity of the city, dining, dancing, and of course, great steaks, to name a few things. And that's just scratching the surface. They didn't even mention Italian Market, Clark Park, Fairmont Park, the Eagles, the great universities, the row homes. But how could they, right? It's one article. And I don't think they could even come close to celebrating all the amazing culture of the 152 distinct neighborhoods in the city. Can you tell I love Philadelphia? It's a great place to live. And that's why our group exercises, if you're following along, if you're in a small group, started with take a field trip. Experience part of Philly either that you haven't or that you haven't in a while to remind yourself of what a blessing it is to live in the city. And actually, David Brodsky, he's with the high school and uh, older youth right now. Um, but David Brodsky is actually collecting the story. So if you did that, if your group did a, uh, did a field trip and you journaled about it, you're, you just know what you love about Philadelphia or any of the exercises we've been doing, he's documenting those by filming them. So he'll be back. And I would say, look for David. He's a guy with a beard that doesn't narrow it down much these days. <laughs> but he's the one with the camera. And he's collecting people's stories because it's good to hear them and remind ourselves. And also, we need to hear what God's doing in your life. So if you wouldn't mind sitting down with him and sharing some of your experiences with some of the exercises. So first, celebrate the city. God celebrates the city in this passage. Second, look for what God's doing. This is the theme of our church. You've been here a month, you've probably heard this. But in John 5, Jesus says, I only do what I see the Father doing. So we think that means we need to be looking for what God is doing. Um, Can you hand me that book, Peter? Front row. Got an illustration there, it's coming up. And so looking for what God is doing puts you in the position of following. And when you follow, you put your energy into the right things and avoid doing nothing. So it allows you to be engaged without being overwhelmed. Third, look in the right places. Where can you find Jesus? Where can you start? Start in your heart for sure. But let me give you an example of a story of someone that I actually know. Um, that I think is a fun example of this. Uh, this guy's name is Carl Maderas. A few years ago, like 2003, um, as the invasion of Iraq is still unfolding, I think this happens the day after um, they took down the statue, if you remember, of Saddam Hussein. So uh, Allied forces invaded, um, and uh, they were moving forward, and it was sort of like when uh, I think the president was saying, hey, like step one's done or whatever. We'll get into that. But um, this guy, Carl, and his friends were praying, and they felt like I was telling them to head in with some supplies if they could be a help uh, to some of the people who 
uh, might need it. And he says this, I jumped out of our rented white suburban in downtown Basra, Iraq, and yelled, who's in charge here? We do this sort of thing. A crowd formed instantly, and it was quickly apparent that someone named Sheikh Ali was the big man in town. By our third minute in Basra, I found myself in the backseat of a stranger's black Mercedes going to meet a man I'd never heard of, the leading Shiite cleric in southern Iraq. Sheikh Ali's domain was the largest mosque in the city. And when we got there, he was presiding over a large gathering of Islamic leaders. But in, good, in, the, in the good fashion of Arab hospitality, he immediately stood up when he saw the four of us at the door and left his meeting to greet us. What are you doing here? He asked, a fair question to ask an American in Iraq in May of 2003. Well, I'm not very good at it, but I'm trying to follow Jesus, and we've come here looking for him. Have you seen him? That got his attention. We're in Lebanon. We were in Lebanon a few weeks ago praying, and the thought came to us that Jesus might be in Iraq. 2,000 years ago, he was always where the religious leaders of his day thought he wouldn't be. Have you seen him? The sheikh squinted over the top of his reading glasses, ruffled his beard, leaned towards his friends, and with a slight smile, and said, interesting question. No, we've not seen Jesus, but maybe the question should be, if he were here, what would he be doing? I was stunned. We batted the idea around for 30 minutes until they announced with an air of finality, he'd be helping the children and taking care of the poor. Therefore, if Jesus would be doing that, maybe we should give more attention to the poor and children, specifically poor children. Sheikh Ali looked at me and smiled. That was a good question you asked. Don't we all know on some level where Jesus would be in our city? And if you think about your neighborhood... Doesn't your gut tell you where Jesus would be? You can ask people around the world from all different sorts of backgrounds. What did Jesus care about? If he were here today, where would he be? Fourth, look to partner. You're looking in the right places is about discovering where God discovering what God is doing to empower people in those areas and joining in. So in verse 21, it says, they will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They will build their own houses. It doesn't say someone will come and build a house for them. Not that that's a bad thing. But I like what Robert uh, Linthicum, he's a sociologist and a theologian, said about churches in the city. He said, we can have different approaches. Uh, But in his opinion, you don't want to be a church in the city meaning you're just huddled up hoping for something in the by and by. You know, you come to church to get your fill and you go about the rest of your life. He compared that to a, a McDonald's drive-up window. He said, yeah, I don't want to be that kind of church. And second, you don't want to be a church to the city, which is a church that provides things for people in the form of charity, but ultimately decides what's done, makes all the decisions. But what he thinks is the best is to be a church with the city, a church that partners with stakeholders in the community to empower the community or support the good things that are already happening. So, where should you start? 
If you can only do well what you see the Father doing, what's he doing around you? This week, why not practice looking for God's looking for God in ways that don't necessarily fit your box. And start somewhere where Jesus might hang out. Let me ask you the same question that the Sheikh considered. If Jesus were in your neighborhood, what would he be doing? Start there. Go to that place. Who do people not like or certain people not like? Jesus was always hanging out with people that other people didn't like. Or people on the outskirts, people who didn't have resources or whatever it might be, marginalized in some way. <coughs> Start there. Go hang out. You can volunteer. Maybe just go sit there and do your work for a couple hours. And then journal about the experience. Where do you see God at work? What's he up to? See what you can see. Because you might stumble into some signposts of the kingdom of God at work right around the corner from you. Let's pray. So, Jesus, uh, we want to see what you're doing around us. We want to see where you're active. Um, and we want to follow you because we know this whole thing can be overwhelming. It can be like too much, too many things um, in the world that need fixing or changing or could use investment. So we want to follow you. We want to be active in pursuing you and putting our energy into the things that you point out. Help us do that. Help us be able to see that. I know I'm not the best at that. And so help me, help us uh, to, as a community and then even in our own individual lives, both, to be able to see what you're up to and have the grace to follow you into those things. In Jesus' name, amen.